12 years ago, Sam and I, before we had kids, um, went on this fantastic mission trip to Macedonia. Um, it might still be called Macedonia or it might be called the Northern Republic of Macedonia. I think they're still fighting over the uh, exact title. But um, we went to uh, uh, this place where Ian and Katie are in currently and we went on their sort of outreach and did different things like painting bridges and doing sort of evangelistic uh, events in the town square and this, that and the other. And one of the things that happens when you go out on a mission trip is that can be a sense of isolation. So at home, you feel enormous sense of you're at home, you've got friends and family around you, but when you go to somewhere else, you are suddenly on your own. All that um, context is lost and things like uh, loneliness can creep in and um, if you want to know more talk to the Y Wamans who will if they don't know it now are going to look forward to that uh, in the in the future but there are all sorts of struggles that you don't necessarily um, expect but suddenly you encounter when you uh, um, answer Jesus's call for you to go somewhere else. So we're in Macedonia um, and um, we made uh, many new friends there and uh, there was this couple, um, this family that actually went out with us that um, lived in Burgess Hill at the time and one of the great things is we sort of sat down and um, sort of learned about them and enjoyed their company. We were um, uh, they were they were quite well off, and they would quite happily sort of buy us dinners and uh, fizzy drinks and coffees and and that sort of thing without sort of uh, having to uh, put it on a spreadsheet to see how much it cost. So they were they were really generous to us, and they were kind. You know, there's that people that are easy to spend time with. You don't have to sort of artificially create uh, conversation. They were um, just a, a, a really ace family to be around. And I have some great memories of sitting in um, the, the sort of the town square of the, uh, the the place where we were, and just drinking shed loads of bitter lemon, and uh, just being surrounded by all the hustle and bustle of uh, our Macedonian life, and starting to sort of feel a little bit at home. And as we grew to know them, we suddenly discovered something rather surprising. They had two ace uh, boys. And um, uh, I had a lot of fun winding them up and uh, uh, doing uh, what I do. And um, suddenly we discovered one of their boys was adopted. Now you couldn't tell by the way they behaved, the language that they used, but it suddenly arose that one of their sons wasn't biologically theirs. Um, But it was very obvious that they loved him that they celebrated his successes, and when he failed to reach expectation, they were quite happy to tell him off as well. Um, And so you couldn't tell from outside that this guy wasn't the flesh and blood of um, the, um, the husband and wife. And what that brings to mind is, isn't it true that you don't need to be a sperm donor, to be someone's father. You don't need to have been um, uh, sort of involved in that moment of conception to be a father to someone. 
this child was obviously parented and fathered uh, uh, by the, the, the husband. So hold that thought in your head. Last week, um, we spent quite a bit of time in the um, very careful theology of the Trinity. Some of you uh, may not have realised the very deliberate language that can and can't be used when talking about Father, Son and Spirit. And I had some interesting conversations afterwards uh, about people um, who hadn't realised the deliberate words um, that were included and excluded when you were talking about this incredibly important um, Christian theology. And, And we looked at that God is three persons, that each person is fully God and yet God is one. And there were these uh, three um, sentences that are all promoted as true in Scripture um, and that Christians have worked to see how they can all be reconciled to one another. And hopefully some of us at least took that in and can explain a little better why we are not Mormons and JWs and other um, sort of heretical sects out there, why uh, um, we can be sort of uh, seen as Christians and, and who else we can extend that hand of Christian fellowship to. So now in your mind, hopefully you've got this idea of fatherhood and now you've got this idea of Trinity in the, the top of your minds. So with those in mind, I, I'd like you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. says this in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish. Everyone say never never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Now, the sentence continues beyond that, but but we're going to stop there for a moment. I wonder if you'd noticed, and hopefully with the training of last week, perhaps the words are becoming a little bit more important to you, um, that Peter calls Jesus um, both the Son of God the Father, and he calls him Lord. So we have Jesus in this place of he is the Son of God the Father and he is Lord um, in his own right. Now, if you have any um, sort of familiarity with perhaps texts that go back a few hundred years, you'll know that the term Lord is something that can just be uh, um, a, a, term, a term of honour. In fact, in our government, we have a house of lords, don't we? So, so we know that the, the, the term Lord is supposed to be one of deference. But when Peter writes it, he does not mean that Jesus can be seen in the same light as the bunch of old people that sit and argue with the House of Commons. It's much more than that. 
Anyone know what language the Old Testament was ri- originally written in? So it's not a trick question, and that's right. So it's written in Hebrew. Now, when you come to the first century, a lot of people, um, the, the sort of the wider culture was to speak Greek. And so the Old Testament, originally written in Hebrew, was translated into Greek, um, often known as the Septuagint because of the 70 people um, that were thought to have translated it. And you have this Greek Old Testament that they referred to, that they enjoyed. And often when Paul quotes the Old Testament, he's quoting the Greek Old Testament rather than the Hebrew one. And so this is the one that often uh, uh, came into use. Now, um, has anyone heard the term Yahweh? So this is an Old Testament name of God. So the word God is kind of uh, what God is, and Yahweh is his name. So the Jews were so um, intent on keeping God's name holy that they were very, very careful to use it. And, and at, at some point it seemed that they were stopped using it altogether because they didn't want to mispronounce it or get it wrong. And, but you have this God uh, revealed his name as Yahweh in the Old Testament. And so when you have this Greek New Testament, you find this word Yahweh again and again, and this Greek New Testament decides to translate um, like the, the, the many, many hundreds of occurrences. They take Yahweh and translate it as Kairos. Everyone say Kairos. Kairos. So that word Kairos is the word Lord, and it's the word that Peter uses here. Peter is not just saying that Jesus is someone important that you should doff your cap to. He is not just saying that he is kind of lord of the manor and has got a bit of property and you're like his serf. When Jesus is saying, when Peter is saying Jesus is lord, it is essentially Peter saying Jesus is Yahweh. And Peter's readers would have taken that in. You and I, who probably don't even speak or read French, which is kind of just over the ocean, um, we kind of lose this a bit when someone goes on about Hebrew and Greek um, and Aramaic. And I can see some of your eyes are glazing and like you're thinking of something else already. But hopefully we'll bring it back um, to something that you can relate to in a minute. So Peter calls Jesus... Lord, and this means more than just an important person, but it is referring to this Old Testament uh, Greek for God. If Jesus is God, then if God is his Father, that doesn't mean that God the Father fathered the Son. Excellent. I'm, I'm glad some of you are looking confused because that means at least you're trying to listen to me. And some of you uh, who didn't even realise I was still talking, uh, um, your, your, your head is somewhere else. But Jesus is God and God the Father is Father of the Son, but the Son is God as well. So the relationship between Father and Son is not that of creator and created being. 
the relationship of Jesus to God the Father is not one of, um, I am the reason you're existing. The relationship is different. And I suggest this morning that if we can think of uh, my uh, friend's son as being his son without actually having been uh, um, sort of given birth to him, as it were, then we can think of God being father to Jesus without Jesus having been created. Some of you are like, well, that's obvious. And some of you are like, I'm really not sure what you're getting at. Um, But I'm trying to explain like uh, 500 years of church arguing in um, a sort of couple of minutes. But Jesus, God the Son, relates to God the Father in this father-son relationship, but it is not one of creator and created being. It is something else. And if we can think of uh, the adopted son having that father-son relationship without being dependent on being sort of biologically his, then we can step away from the idea that Jesus is created. Because it's incredibly important that we understand Jesus always was. Because that is part of what it is to be God. If you haven't worked that out or understood a word that I'm saying... That's fine. We'll get to something that you can get to grips with, hopefully. So. Um, If you can, turn to John chapter 5, verse 16. This is Jesus trying to explain this relationship that is not quite the same as my relationship to my two sons. Slightly different. So it says this in John chapter 5, verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense... Jesus said to him, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Everyone say equal. Equal. You find all these giveaway words that are actually incredibly important to how we see Father, Son, and Spirit. And here we have Jesus saying, I am equal to God the Father. And so it goes on in verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer, Very truly I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son does also. So the Son mirrors God the Father. Whatever the Father gets up to, Jesus does as well. The book of Hebrew talks about the Son being the exact representation of the Father. For the Father loves the Son. Everyone says loves. Loves. 
The Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. We find you honour the Son and you honour the Father. They are equal in the amount of honour that they should be receiving. If you were an Old Testament Jew and you thought God was one, this would be um, quite a shock for a Jew to be saying this. Whoever does not honour the Son does not honour the Father who sent him. So we find this incredible primacy of Jesus. You need to honour him because to honour him is to honour the Father who sent him. Verse 24. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Can I hear hallelujah? Hallelujah. It's good. And will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. And I am very thankful for that. Very truly I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear him will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. I think I'm going to leave it there. So we are listening in to God the Son talking about his relationship with his heavenly Father. His relationship with his heavenly Father is different from ours. He is um, equal to the Father in a way that we as created beings aren't. So we are shown here that the Son again is divine, just like Peter says and, and just as we looked at last week. And he is this perfect image of the Father. You want to know what God is like? Go, God, I want to know you. What is your face like? Show me something of your ways. And that is Jesus. You don't need to ask him. You can just read about it. It is a crystal clear representation of what the Heavenly Father is like. And their relationship is love. This is the thing that kind of binds them together and is the means by which they operate towards each other. It's not them vying for position. It's not them trying one to be better than the other or one to have authority over the other. There is not some sort of eternal conflict, but their relationship is this divine, perfect love between father and son. And when one does a job, the other come seamlessly beside and does it as well. They work in perfect harmony and perfect union to the point at which our language struggles. So we say God is three persons and God is one as well. Their um, unity is so pronounced that you can't talk about God being three beings. Because their unity overcomes that distinction. And so I want you to hear this. That that intimacy of father and son, not of creator and created being, but two equal um, persons, 
That is the basis and bedrock of creation and our faith. When you look at the world, you may think, especially in a sort of British winter, the world is inhospitable and uh, somewhere that you don't really want to be. But we find here the Trinity, which is the beginning of all things, there's this love. And out of that love, everything has come. And so, if you dig down far enough into creation, you will find God's love. And so this world that sometimes seems harsh and inhospitable and unfriendly, the foundation and bedrock is love. And that changes how we see creation. And I wonder how you feel about your faith. You know, this faith we have is not always easy. You may not feel always that you are appreciated by your peers as being an intelligent, independent thinking person because they just think you've been brainwashed by religion or that you are believing a text that is full of contradictions or historical inaccuracies or something else. But we have this wonderful reassurance that when you dig down deep enough into our faith, it finds itself in this bedrock of love between Father, Son, and Spirit. And when you start saying that, I think it's different. You are not just talking about facts, because in the end, who lives just for facts? If you say that the ultimate meaning of everything comes down to this love between father and son, then suddenly people go, oh, that, that sounds interesting. That sounds worth living for. That sounds something I can get my head around. Kevin, I hate Greek and Hebrew, and I could not care less what kairos means. But if you say love is the foundation for everything between father and son, and there is this beautiful, harmonious, perfect love that is the very nature of God, I can take that away. And so this morning, as you are perhaps cold, perhaps you are aching or in pain, perhaps your uh, bank account is empty, perhaps Today or your future this week is uncertain and you don't know what it all is going to bring about. As we doubt and worry and fear as mortal, frail human beings, we are so prone to. I want this trinity to be be a kind of remedy to that. Because the ultimate reality is this love and that no matter what happens, you can be sure... That God Almighty, three in one, this Father and Son that have loved each other before anything happened and is going to be that regardless of what happens, that that is the bedrock of everything. And suddenly, hopefully, you can feel a little bit more reassured, a little bit more content Hopefully, a little bit of peace leaks into your heart despite your best efforts to stop it. So, Jesus.
Jesus said those words in, in John 5, and he, he reveals this closeness to the Father that no one but the Spirit can equal. And the Jews, they understand exactly what Jesus is saying, and they get more upset that Jesus. I love this way that the Jews are upset at Jesus, and Jesus goes to his own defense, and instead of making matters worse, um, making matters better, he made matters worse. Before they got upset that he was healing people on the wrong days, and then he started talking about him being God, and the Jews just went from uh, mildly upset to outrageously apoplectic. And uh, so we have this wonderful thing of Jesus, I think, just cranking up the annoyance um, with all his uh, fellow countrymen. And quite understandably, they all accuse him of blasphemy because if you find a human going around going, I am God, then that guy's either sort of an idiot or, you know, evil or true. And there's only one person that's ever been able to say it um, and been truthful. So it was really big deal when Jesus was talking like this um, in sort of around 30 AD. Wonderfully, the power of Jesus's identity and confession of himself doesn't subside over 30 years. You know how language can lose its potency um, over the years and we can't think, oh, it doesn't matter so much. Oh, why did everyone get into such a flap? Well, when Peter writes his letter in around sort of 60 AD, um, the language, the, the significance changes, but it's no less um, virulent. Because there was a new dynamic that came about. You see, um, Rome saw loads and loads of non-Jews start to say that Jesus... Um, was their saviour. Christianity originally was seen as kind of like this weird Jewish sect. They'd probably get over it or, you know, sort it out by the Jewish leaders and it would extinguish or just sort of be grafted back in to that main body of belief. But it didn't happen like that. These Christians kept multiplying like rabbits, you know, flipping nuisance before they were kind of really containable and easy to handle. And suddenly they started getting everywhere. And not only were they not found in just in Israel, but they were found like all over the Roman Empire. And that upset them. They didn't like it. They um, got irritated by it. Now, 50 years before Christ... This Caesar was around. Anyone know his name? Julius. Julius, everyone. I'm impressed. That, so obviously that facial likeness, everyone's, yeah, that's definitely Julius Caesar's nose. Um, but anyway, so this is Julius Caesar. And around 50 years um, before um, sort of uh, Christ, he was around. Um, and the Jews kept petitioning Rome arguing with them about, you, you need to respect us, you need to hold us in high regard, you know, with this ancient, wonderful faith, and we've got all these really ardent supporters. And so it seems that Julius Caesar decided to go, you know what, guys, okay. And he recognised Judaism by sort of a series of different laws um, as religio um, licita, 
religio licita, and that's Latin. So we've done a little bit of Hebrew, a little bit of Greek, and now I'm going to give you a bit of Latin. And, and basically this meant that Judaism was a legitimate religion, that the Rome could look at Judaism and go, you know what, there is room in our empire for you guys. And so this, the Jews were given a degree of respectability throughout the Roman Empire because of this understanding of Judaism as religio licita. I wonder if you can see what's coming. However, as Christianity grew, as more and more Gentiles um, decided that Jesus was okay by them and actually God the Son, uh, Christianity emerged from this shadow of Judaism and the Romans didn't like it and they were like, you know what? Jews, Judaism, Old Testament, religio licita, that's fine, you're, you're valid and we'll, we'll respect your God and, and give you uh, um, sort of permission to worship your own God without getting involved with ours. But the Christians didn't get any such respect because they had no heritage. They had no um, lobbying power. They, um, they were not a power to be reckoned with. And so Christianity was recognised as religi- religio illicita. You heard the term illicit? Well, that comes from that. And so Christians became unofficial. They were kind of like these anarchists well they were often called atheists because they didn't believe in anyone else's god do you remember that title that peter uses for jesus that title of kairos that becomes crucial in a different way now as the roman empire look upon christianity and doesn't recognize it as an official religion Peter says, Jesus is Kairos. If you weren't given that sort of special permission that the Jews were, then there was a problem because the Roman Empire expected its residents to worship the emperor. The emperor was coincidentally called Kairos. The emperor was supposed to be called Lord, and you were supposed to sacrifice to him. The, um, this sort of took different significance in different places, but there was this worship, to some extent, of the leader of the Roman Empire. And you have this problem, because suddenly Christians are going, yeah, Jesus is Lord, and you might have sung it this morning without really thinking it through. But if you were in ancient Rome and you said Jesus is Lord, all the Romans would get really upset. And they were like, no, no, the emperor is Lord. You can't start calling this sort of um, carpenter's son Lord as well. That's just ridiculous. That is blasphemy. And in a time when um, blasphemy was punished, the punishment wasn't a slap over the wrists or wasn't a 50 quid fine. takes me to a great character in church history, Polycarp. Now, I really like this. If, if, um, 
If you don't, this doesn't float your boat, that's fine, and you can go somewhere else on the Sunday. But um, <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, I'll change. Honest. Right, so this is like Polycarp's last days, and uh, hopefully it will tie in some of the things that I've been speaking about. It says this. At last, Polycarp ended his prayer after mentioning all with whom at any time he had been associated, whether small or great, famous or unknown, and the whole Catholic Church throughout the world. It's like Miles praying. So when we get Miles to say grace, he thanks God for the cups and the knives and the forks and for the ceiling and the table and each individual ingredient that makes up the meal. And it sounds like Polycarp had a similar passion for prayer and mentions everything. The hour for his departure had come, so they set him on a donkey and brought him to the city. The day was a great Sabbath. He was met by Herod, the chief of the police, and his father, Nicetus, whom, after transferring him to their carriage, sat beside him and tried persuasion. You hear these weasley little words. What harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and sacrifice? What harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and sacrificing. What's the big deal, Polycarp? You'll be safe then. At first he made no answer, but when they persisted, he replied, I have no intention of taking your advice. Persuasion having failed, they then turned to threats. A very classic argument. When persuasion failed, they turned to threats, and they put and and put him down so hurriedly that in leaving the carriage, he scraped his shin. Those strange details that we have in church history. And without even looking round, as if nothing had happened, he'd set off happily and at a swinging pace for the stadium. The stadium is where he's going to die. And I love the idea that Polycarp is like jauntily striding towards his death, because that's quite a big deal. I wonder how many of you could sort of whistle on the way to um, the sort of firing range or whatever. So he went at a swinging pace. And the stadium, the noise was so deafening, and you can think of a big football stadium here, definitely. The noise was so deafening that many could not hear at all. But as Polycarp came into the arena, a voice from heaven came to him, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one saw the speaker, but many of our people heard the voice. So all these Christians going, yeah, no, this is true. This is not just um, artificial history. We've got eyewitnesses. His introduction was followed by a tremendous roar as the news went round. Polycarp has been arrested, this atheist Christian. At length, he, was, he stepped forward and he was asked by the Pro Council if he really was Polycarp. When he said yes, the, po- the pro-council urged him to deny the charge. Respect your years. He's an old guy. Um, Respect your years, he exclaimed, adding similar appeals regularly made on such occasions. Swear by Caesar's fortune. Change your attitude. Say away with the godless. But Polycarp, with his face set, looked at all the crowd in the stadium waved his hands towards them, sighed, looked up at heaven and cried, away with the godless. And so the governor gets excited. The governor pressed him further, swear and I will set you free, denounce Christ. And this is one of my favourite sayings in all church history. So he's in the stadium, there is a 
mob baying for his blood. He's got the whole Roman Empire um, aligned to execute him. And it says this, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? In that stadium of thousands upon thousands of people shouting for his death, for the prospect of execution looming in the next few moments, he stands up and goes, Jesus has done me good for 86 years. I ain't going to deny him now. When the others persisted, swear by Caesar's fortune, Polycarp retorted, if you imagine that I will swear by Caesar's fortune, as you put it, pretending not to know whom whom I am, I will tell you plainly, I am a Christian. Probably hear a pin drop as everyone goes, don't say that. If you wish to study the Christian doctrine, choose a day and you shall hear it. So he offers to give the accuser um, a Bible study. I wonder how many of you would offer to give the Bible study the person that is going to kill you. Um, the pro-cancel replied, convince the people. With you, rejoined Polycarp, I think it is proper to discuss these things. For we have been taught to render as they're due to rulers and powers ordained by God such honour as cast no stain on us. To the people I do not feel it my duty to make any defence. So the pro-council is livid. His face is red with, and like steam is coming out of his ears. And so th- th- this guy goes, I have wild beasts, said the pro-council. I will throw you to them if you do not change your mind. This old man, 86 years old, says, call them. We cannot change our attitude if it means to change from better to worse but it is a splendid thing to change from cruelty to justice. If you, make, um, if you make light of the beast, retorted the governor, I'll have you destroyed by fire unless you change your mind. So poor Polycarp started off with wild beasts and now he's got fire on top of that. He's not doing well. It's a bit like Jesus who defended himself and got into worse trouble. And Polycarp answered, The, thri- the fire you threaten um, burns for a little time and is soon extinguished. But there is a fire you know nothing about, the fire of the judgment to come and of eternal punishment, the fire reserved for the ungodly. But why do you hesitate? Do what you want. Just blows me away that this 86-year-old man with um, barely uh, a sort of generation past between what Peter wrote um, can say all that in the face of certain death and he dies. There isn't a white knight that comes and rescues him. There isn't kind of a light from heaven that somehow uh, um, sees him rescued. After all this, after winding up the Roman authorities, he's executed. Do you hear the importance of who is Lord in that passage? The pro-council wanted um, Polycarp just to say, Caesar is Lord. It was like, just say it flippantly. You know, no one really means it. Just say it. And Polycarp, no, Jesus is Lord. That You don't get any other. There, there is no one to hold the light to him. And I will stand up for Jesus so much that I will be prepared to die rather than say this flippant thing that you would have me say just so that I can save my own life. 
Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. And Caesar is not. All the power and principalities of that time and age are not Lord. There's no other powerful figure that can hold a candle to Jesus' superiority. Friends, we may not verbally deny Jesus. But the question is, how are our lives as testimony to Jesus as Lord in our day-to-day existence? Because you think there are all sorts of things vying for your attention and your time and your effort day-to-day. Money, sex, power, popularity, entertainment, drugs, food, drink, work, relationships. These all can say to you, I offer promise, I offer help, I offer fulfilment, I offer that thing which is missing from your life. And we start to lift them up. We start to think, you know what, I like the sound of that. And we start to call them kairos, not verbally, but in how we live our lives. And our behaviour becomes, it becomes clear that Jesus is not Lord, that something else is more important than him. To be a believer, it, it takes regular affirmation again and again. That Jesus is Lord. And it's one of the great things about sort of singing and stuff together. That you sing it out. And as you sing it out, you remind yourself, wait a minute. All the other things that I worry about, fret about, pursue, chase, and lift up as if that doesn't happen, I'm going to be devastated. They fade away before the Lordship of Jesus. He deserves our primary ambitions and affections and energy and time and resources. And do you know what? He's the only one that will, in the end, provide you with a joy and peace that's satisfied. Lots of other things offer you all sorts of change in your mind. All sorts of things offer you um, the ability to perhaps have more pleasure or more... Um, time or uh, more prominence and they all whisper to you just make me Lord just pursue me and you'll enjoy them but they all fail because there is only one Lord in the end so this morning I quite clearly say that Jesus is the Lord whether you behave like it or not whether he is your Lord or not Jesus is the Lord But we can only say he is our Lord if we conduct ourselves in trust and obedience and hope of him. If our daily lives are lived out with that recognition, then yes, he is your Lord. But if you live your life only thinking of him for half an hour on a Sunday morning, then I suggest to you that he is no such thing. If the idea of dying for him sounds weird, foreign, alien, and um, outrageous, then perhaps your affections haven't lain on him 
as much as you thought. I wonder if we lived in the first century, whether our neighbours could justify, justifiably grass us up as atheists, as Christians were first called. Would they have any evidence at all for that? Or would they assume that we, like them, sacrifice to Lord Caesar? So Jesus is again made really important in what Peter has to write. Um, And he then talks a little bit in his letter about what Jesus has brought about. Peter reminds us in his letter that our commitment to him has seen a new birth come about. There is something new when a Christian Um, confesses Jesus as Lord and Saviour, something starts. The old us that kept running after evil like a dog returning to its vomit, that is dead. That, That doesn't happen anymore. The old us is consigned to the trash heap and there is a new us where we become new creations and our affections and our desires and our hopes and our dreams, they are transformed. If we have made that confession, then that transition has happened. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. So it says this in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. So I tell you this. And insist in it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. So he's just talking about the godless. He's talking about people that don't know Jesus. In the futility of their thinking, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity and they are full of greed. Those types of people, they dominate the message of our media, of the newspapers, of the television, of the internet. As you struggle in your faith, I want you to be, have your eyes wide open that these people that are dull in senses are the ones that drive most narratives that we encounter. And it's one of the great things about having a scripture to go back to because you need an antidote to all those different messages that say chase lust, chase wealth, chase uh, something other than God would have us chase. That, however, is not the way of life you have learned. When you have heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. All these things that we chase after destroy the image of God in us. And Paul says, don't go after those guys. Put on your new self, created, can you see this? To be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Is anyone there yet? 
Has anyone lied there in their righteousness that they are like God? That's quite a thing that Paul puts down as our ambition. It's not to be good enough. It's not to just avoid swearing mostly or um, only get angry every other Tuesday or um, have a modicum of greed. But it's to be like God. That's quite a calling, quite a new creation, quite a different frame of mind. I'm not there yet, but it's quite something to be inspired by. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. And then um, he goes on. If we love Christ, we are born again, and we will increasingly seek goodness, not because we get a bigger prize in heaven, not because... People will think more highly of us just because it's, we love goodness, because we love truth. And this new birth in us where everything is changed, where our affections and plans and ambitions are changed, we have suddenly a living hope, a living hope that just goes on and on. And the hope should, if it's true and right, it should carry us through Poverty, pain, sickness, persecution and every other obstacle, everything we encounter in life, this living hope should live in us regardless. So whatever you worried about facing in Sunday afternoon, this living hope should carry you through it. This earth, as Peter will remind us time and time again, is not our destiny. We're looking over the horizon when creation is made perfect. And it is in God's presence that our inheritance is kept. Our salvation doesn't lie in the past as just something done and dusted that is uh, uh, no longer touchable. It's not your current ability in how you live out day to day. It's not even, and some of you should be very thankful that, it's not that you believe correctly and precisely. This living hope is kept in heaven, in God's presence. And, and for Peter, this is really important, that, that, heaven is not, um, that heaven is the safe for our salvation rather than anywhere else. And he says three things. He says this heavenly hope of ours is permanent. It is everlasting. It won't go anywhere. It doesn't fail. This hope that you have doesn't suddenly let you down at the last moment. It's in heaven in the, uh, in the very company of God. This hope that you have doesn't get contaminated. It's absolutely pure. It may not always feel like it and your hope may sometimes look incomplete, but that hope's in heaven. And so the malignant cancer of sin just doesn't touch it. And so you have this 
permanent hope. You have this pure hope. And the last thing that Peter says is that it doesn't fade. Have you ever sought out a particular enjoyment or stimulation where the effect of it just sort of diminishes over time? You know, kids can have an energy drink once and it sends them off, but you can build up a sort of certain uh, immunity to it. And there's probably other things in our life that the first time we tasted it, we were like, this is amazing, and now it has very little effect on us. Well, the salvation doesn't do that. It does not fade. It does not diminish. We do not get anaesthetized to it. The joy that you will experience first and foremost is a promise for you forever. If you get fixated on that price, you suddenly realise that everything else is inferior. There's nothing else in life that shines a candle to this hope because everything else fades and dies. Your partner that you've chased after uh, for however long, they grow old, uh, assume wrinkles, and they wither and they'll die. That wealth that you've chased after will deteriorate. That um, position in society that you long for, that will fade away. That position that you've worked so hard for, that will go as well. The only thing that is pure, steadfast, everlasting and unfadable is this hope in heaven. And so I just ask us to be like Polycarp. Never allow um, yourselves to exchange what is better for what is worse. For Jesus is the best and anything that's not him is a poor exchange to make. Please bow your heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for everyone's patience here as we've gone through these things. God, I, I thank you that they can be life and truth to us. Lord God, I pray that Jesus would indeed be Lord in our lives, that it wouldn't just be something we say or sing, but it is something that we live out every day. And Lord God, I thank you that our hope is in heaven so that it is um, everlasting and pure and unfading. And Lord God, I pray that we would always look to that rather than anything else to keep us going. And Lord God, I pray as you send us out from here that we would know your grace and love that has existed in the Trinity before the beginning of time. God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.